Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Here's part two of our conversation with Little Kids Rock CEO and founder, David Wish. Let's talk about your work with instrument manufacturers and putting instruments in the hands of students and connect that to your relationships with notable musicians. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Sure. I guess I'll, I'll start with the musicians. <laughs> Our work with musicians, again, is about as grassroots as grassroots could be. I was working in California, in Northern California, and I wanted to get more support for my kids. And so on a lark, I wrote a letter to the three local musicians of note that I knew of, Bonnie Raitt, Carlos Santana, and John Lee Hooker. And I thought, well, there's three packages and letters I will never hear back on, but what the heck? I mean, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, and I sent a CD of the original music that my kids wrote and said, hey, we'd love for you to come and visit or check it out. And to my great surprise and shock, all three of them responded. John Lee came by the school. Carlos Santana bought a whole bunch of electric guitars for us. And Bonnie Ray got involved. And when I let her know that we were starting our nonprofit, she joined our honorary board. And last year, actually, all these years later, we just honored her in New York. And then from there, it's been very grassroots. You know, oh, this musician we worked with visited the program, loved it, told their friend. And so, you know, through Liberty DeVito of Billy Joel's band, we're meeting Carmine Apiece and then through Carmine, this one, and then through Slash, that one, and James Hetfield, this one, and Stephen Van Zant has been a huge help to our program and a huge supporter, and he's a wonderful guy, has his own nonprofit, the Rock and Roll Forever Foundation, um, and we work very closely with them. So it's been very grassroots and continues to be, really. We don't have anyone on our team that's like an official artist relations person or whatever. Oh, yeah. um, and, and then in terms of the musical products industry, it's hard to make music without instruments. <laughs> right. It's not impossible, but it's hard. And a lot of times such a small intervention can make such a huge difference. So for us, like if we spend $5,000 on instruments for a school, we can buy a full class set with our leveraged relationships within the musical products industry. They sell to us at sub wholesale prices. It's just so worth it. And so we've met with many different manufacturers over the years. And so, you know, like for example, right now we're, we're working very closely with our partners over at Epiphone. And you know, we buy instruments for really a fraction of what you would buy them for at a store, and that helps us stretch our dollars much, much further. And I think that for the instrument manufacturers, of course, there's a little bit of an upside, right, because we're putting their brand in front of the next generation, but they're betting on the future. They're not making any money <laughs> working with us now. What they get out of it is the notion that they're building the market 
and they're doing it in a way that's sustainable. Like, you know, one of the things I heard from a lot of guitar manufacturers, like we have no problem selling people their first guitar. It's the second one that we're really worried about mm. because that first one winds up under the bed and collecting dust nine out of 10 times and the person does not continue with it right. because there wasn't an environment that was conducive to them learning. Maybe their enthusiasm led them to the music store, they bought that instrument and then they tried a little bit and didn't follow up. Well, they look at Little Kids Rock as like, no, no, this is the real deal. Kids get classes every week. They're learning the music that they love. They're going to really build the next generation. So so it's a good strategic relationship that we have with the musical products companies, but it's largely just around uh, the fact that we're looking to get the greatest bang for our buck. And another one of the companies that we work really closely with, and they're just absolutely wonderful, is Sweetwater. Oh, yeah. You know? One of the biggest online, and they have a brick and mortar business, but one of the biggest online retailers of musical instruments. Yeah, and we love them. <laughs> They're very, very community oriented. If you go to their site, you'll notice at checkout, they give you the option to make a donation to Little Kids Rock. And last year, we trained literally over 1,000 teachers, and over 600 of them got complete class sets of musical instruments. Think about the shipping on that and wow. the logistics. So Sweetwater handles all of that for us. Oh, wow. So we, so they, they, you know, we worked these incredible prices out with our manufacturing partners, and Sweetwater is. Um, our retailer of note, and we love them, and they make it so easy for us to ship out thousands of instruments to hundreds of sites day in, day out. That's a and big just, piece of it. Oh, I, yes. I mean, when you mentioned buying a full class set of instruments, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. So that having that logistic piece, I hadn't even thought about that. Oh, That's oh, huge. It is huge. And uh, I remember in the days before we worked with Sweetwater, we still give our teachers the option, what is it that you best want to help build your program? We call our programs Modern Band because it teaches modern music. And we give teachers guitars, basses, drums, keyboards, cymbals, technology stuff, mics. And a teacher may already have a keyboard. Uh, or a set of keyboards. So they want more guitars and ukuleles, or they may have a bunch of guitars, but they want a rhythm section and they want a PA and they want electric guitar. So there's a lot of choice. We give our teachers options because we don't believe in one size fits all, even though the budget may be similar for each school. And so what does that mean? No two orders are the same. And so Sweetwater handles all of that for us. It's wonderful. Speaking of technology, mm. with Little Kids Rock being now 16 years old, yes. technology, especially in music, mm. has changed a lot. Can you speak to that? How have you seen that? And how is it manifest in what you do? Well, it's funny. I was talking to uh, my friend Carl, who's the dean of music education at Ithaca College, and he said, I don't have the music anymore. I can't control the music anymore. The music is everywhere. It used to be, and he was saying the royal eye, of course, me as a music educator at the highest levels, I would say this is what you will listen to. This is what we will teach. Not necessarily in an authoritarian way, but like, hey, you're going to be exposed to what I expose you to. But now user-directed content is the norm. So if you're not getting what you want in a school, you just go to YouTube and boom, there it is. So... Technology has been as disruptive in the world of music as it has been in the world of everything. And music education is no different. So, for example, I would encourage your listeners, especially your listeners who might think they're not musical, and I, and I would love to disabuse them of that notion, <laughs> um, go to YouTube and say, you know, 
how to play and then put your favorite band and then your favorite song and then on an instrument. How to play, you know, I've got a feeling by the Black Eyed Peas on keyboard or how to play Shake It Up by whoever on the guitar. And what you'll find is thousands of free instructional videos at all levels, Yes, you know, and it's a miraculous and scary and wonderful time. And technology is a storm that leaves no leaf unturned, really. And music education, if we're going to move as quickly as music, if music education is to keep pace with music in general, boy, we have to stay nimble. And so, for example, what's the number one musical form in the United States today? Hip hop. Hip hop is the number one selling music it has been for the past few years. Well, guess what? We just hired a specialist in hip hop education and all of the training that we're doing with our teachers has hip hop embedded in it. You can't do student-centered music education if you have no insight as to how you would teach hip hop. Now, we have lots of teachers for whom hip hop is a foreign language. They've never listened to it. Or if they have, they might not like it or feel uncomfortable about it. Well, that's where we come in. We come in and show, no, this, these are the techniques that you would use to teach it, to learn it, to embrace it, you know, and to use it as a, as a means of leveraging that passion that your kids have. Similarly, we partnered with Harmon, the uh, musical products company. They're a partner of ours. And... Um, the CEO, Dinesh Paliwal and Paula Davis and some of the other wonderful folks over there funded our Jam Zone, which is a online suite of lessons, teach you how to play guitar, drums, bass, keyboards. I would encourage your, your visitors to go to littlekidsrock.org and look for the Jam Zone, click on it, and there's all kinds of free lessons there. Another thing I would say about technology is that not only does it get the information out there in a way that you never could have done before, it also used well brings you to skills you might not have ever developed without right. the technology. We work with a lot of special needs children. You know, one out of every 10 kids in the U.S. public school system has been designated as having some special needs. Well, so what if that special need is uh, limited motor skills? Well, they might not have the facility to play on a guitar, but they might very well have the facility to program beats on an iPad or to sequence or to sing or whatever. Or what if it's um, a visual problems like uh, serious dyslexia, right? Well, musical notes don't go down so easily for dyslexic people. <laughs> yeah. So, well, there's all kinds of programs we'll show you. No, put your fingers here. You don't need to read the music. Here's an animated guitar fretboard that literally will show you note for note what it is you're wanting to do. And they can create. Absolutely. Wow. My professors from Berkeley College of Music, you know, where I attended, would want me to ask this question. Your experience coming out of these early years of music education, this is where the kernel of little kids rock started, right? The Mm -hmm. first grade, second grade, this the light bulb hits you. Mm. How does that early learning, let's call it foundational learning in schools, what you and your organization are supporting so vibrantly, How does that bridge to other forms of music? Specifically, I'm thinking jazz, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. And jazz is a particular genre and skill set that grows out of early music learning. Can you connect that for me a little bit? And what are your thoughts on that? 
Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts about it because, uh, you know, like here's the dirty little secret is that I'm a jazzer. I mainly just play jazz. And guitar player, right? Guitar, <laughs> and a guitar yeah, player, yeah. Right. I mean, like my favorite players are like, you know, Wes Montgomery and Django Reinhardt yeah. and all these folks. And But I have no agenda when it comes to music other than that it propagate. And I believe that, you know, like in Jurassic Park, they're like, life will find a way. And eventually the dinosaurs will eat everybody. I, you know, so that was probably not a great example. But but I feel the same about music. Like, it'll find a way. We can't control it. You just can't. So I don't necessarily see it as my obligation to build a new bridge. But that said, you can't stop it from doing that because once a person plays music, they cannot listen to it the same way ever again. If you play an instrument, you literally can't watch another human being play an instrument without seeing it as a player and a listener yourself. If you're just a consumer, purely a consumer, your experience is different. I'm not going to say it's not as rich, although it's not quite as rich. That's why everybody should play. It's different. It's very different. And so so I'm not preservationist in nature. I don't feel I need to preserve rock music or jazz or classical because – you know, civilizations come and go. Music's come and go. Are we going to destroy ourselves that Gilgamesh isn't as broadly read as it was in the, you know, third millennia BC or whatever? Probably not. Like, there'll always be a place for great music, but it won't be frozen. And so the one guarantee that all music remains vibrant is that as many people as possible become music makers, that they make music themselves. And so to me, that's my answer to people that say, well, what about jazz or what about classical? You know, I'm genre neutral. Right. But you know who's not genre neutral? Learners. <laughs> Kids. Right. They have their preferences. And that's what we like to lean into. Once you bring them onto that musical choo-choo train, where it's going to go, nobody knows. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. I want to share a story with you about my son, who is a alto sax player. He's in his first few years now of learning through the school band program. And of course, my background in music, and I'm trying to instill on him, he loves his Taylor Swift, right? He loves the stuff that he has found, but I'm trying to also get him hip to other musicians that he wouldn't naturally find. Yeah. And of course, you know, I have a real book in my house and we're looking at standards. But what I noticed was... I'm not trying to make him perform a particular way. He gets lessons and we're looking at some of these standards. But I heard him swing. Mm. Like I heard natural swing groove in his playing. Mm. Like it grooved. And I certainly couldn't teach him that. Mm. And he wasn't doing exercises to help him swing. Mm. He's 12. Mm -hmm. He just naturally did it. Mm. And I heard it. Mm. And, and that resonates a little bit for me with this hardwired idea. And I wanted to hit you with one other question about this music creating, which is about expression. Mm. And that's such a big part of being musicians and learning music. My opinion is when people learn to create, the resonance that they find 
is in the expression. That is what is resonating, that they can express themselves. Mm. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And then I want to follow up on your likes of music. I want to come back to that. <laughs> so tell sure. me about the expression piece. Yeah, I think that you said it well, this creating. You know, the antithesis of creating is destroying. And both require agency and power. But one of them is innately really satisfying and the other is cheap and empty calories. Children and people, I believe, are more attracted to the thrill of creating and the sustaining, energizing, life-affirming gifts that that brings as opposed to the cheap, empty calories of like, hey, I just destroyed your mailbox or I graffitied this thing or I beat this person up or whatever. That's fleeting. Kids will go there, as will adults, if they don't have an outlet, if they don't have that creative outlet. So music provides that. But in terms of expressing, wow. I mean, I will tell you that in my first guitar class, I had a little boy named Sergio and wonderful student and he would write his own songs and I remember in fact he was one of the first kids to ever write a song in my class and I remember I was so blown away like wow you wrote that song that's amazing it was little dinosaur it sounded like an early rolling stone song incredible so anyways I remember um, a few years after he graduated from school his mother called me she was absolutely bereft she was sobbing I had a really hard time understanding what she was saying and she explained to me that her other son Francisco had died unexpectedly the day before of pneumonia and would I please come to the funeral and so of course I did and at that point in my life, I was a little bit younger. It was the saddest thing that I'd ever seen in my life. This guy died at the age of like 21, leaving behind a one-year-old son. It was an open casket funeral. He died the day before his birthday. He was buried on his birthday. It was shattering. It would be the only word I could use to describe it. And, you know, when you walk into an environment like that, all you want to do is anything. And But what can you do? And I noticed when I walked in that not only was Sergio there, but so were all of the kids from his original guitar class. They were all at different middle schools, but they had remained tight through the music. So I was like, oh, well, these are my students. I will sit with my kids and that'll be my small thing. I'll just minister to the best of my ability. Anyways, I'll never forget that at a certain point during the ceremony, you know, Sergio told me that he had written a song for his brother and it really changed my life. I didn't realize it at the time. I mean, I was thunderstruck. I, I felt, you know, it was echoes of that first song he had written. But the first song he had written was like the music on a dance floor at a wedding, like, ha, ah, we're all having a good time. Isn't this great? But this was like, you know, when life kicks you in the teeth and you're down and eventually that happens to everybody. What do you have in your life that's worth anything? If you're lucky, <laughs> you have your health. If you're lucky, you have people that love you and that you love. But then what? Like a big house, fancy this, like that. None of that means anything. But music is one of the very few things that means something. And to see then and there that I had played a role in giving him that opportunity, that thing to turn to in a time of real trouble, 
was profound. And I, it wasn't like I said, and so I'm going to start Little Kids Rock. But it was a defining moment. I'll never forget it. I'm still in touch with Sergio. He's now like 26 or something, 27, wonderful guy. And I'm with many of those students. But that's the power that music has. It brings you solace when little else can. It helps you express things that words just can't do. You know, words aren't enough. If they were, there wouldn't be any music. Right. Wow. I mean, it's a super powerful story, and um, I, I, I don't have really much to say about it, but you're dead on about we all need ways to communicate, and some of us are better and more connected to how to do that, and some of us are challenged in that, and music is that doorway. Yeah. Left turn. Tell me a little bit more about your personal music background. You're a guitarist. Mm. We were speaking prior to recording about Django Reinhardt <laughs> and your adventures in Maplewood. Uh, tell me about that experience with the Maplewood group. Well, I'll tell you a couple things. So first of all, I'm a very unlikely person to have started this organization because when I was a child, I didn't like music education. I just loved music. <laughs> so I didn't like my music classes. And I'm pretty in touch with that fact. And I understand why I didn't like them. I'll tell a story, a brief one. I remember I wanted to play the guitar. It wasn't offered. So when instruments came around, there was this thing that looked like a guitar. You crammed it under your chin and it was called the violin. And I said, well, okay, I'll play that. That looks close enough. And I was, I was excited. But then quickly I realized, like, I don't really like this music that we're playing. And I remember thinking, what am I going to do with this violin? And then it hit me. There was that song that the Beatles did. It was called Eleanor Rigby. I could play that. And so I went to school the next day and I asked my music teacher, please show me how to play Eleanor Rigby. Let's do that. And I'll, I'll never forget. He said, you get that at home. We don't do that here. So I hung up the violin very shortly thereafter. Then I joined the choir, um, and I had a music teacher that told me I couldn't sing, and I believed them, and so I quit the choir. And then I took drums with a jazz drummer. I wanted to be John Bonham. He wanted me to be Buddy Rich. He gave me a drum pad. I was traumatized, so I quit. <laughs> and if it wasn't for the fact that my dear friend in high school, Paul Brill, could play guitar, and I thought to myself, well, I'm no more socially awkward than Paul, and he could teach me if he can play. You know, he, In fact, he was much cooler than me because he could play. So I said, Paul, can you show me how to play? And indeed he did. And he didn't show me to play the way they were trying to teach me in music class. It was like, put your hands here, do this, and boom. Next thing you know, I'm playing you know, Grateful Dead songs and Tom Petty and you too, and I'm feeling like on top of the world. I'm feeling like, why didn't someone show me this before? And so I became an obsessive music player mm. all outside of school. And then it was through playing that I finally came to jazz, which I had heard, but I was like, ugh, that's old people's music. I don't like that. That's so corny. But what happened was one day I was at a club and I saw these people playing jazz and I looked at the guitar player and I'm feeling pretty cool. I'm like, yeah, I can play Jimi Hendrix songs. I can play Eric Clapton songs. I'm feeling confident in my skills. And I watched this person playing. I'm like, whoa, what is he 
doing on that <laughs> instrument? Like, I feel like I barely even know how to play watching that. And so I still didn't like the way it sounded, but, you know, it got me interested. And then I started listening more, and then I started liking the way it sounded, and I started playing more in the style, and then I kind of fell down that rabbit hole. And, you know, I think Pablo Casals was the one who said it best. Music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime is not enough for music. I mean, you can go as deep as you wish. Yep. <laughs> and oh, yeah. so someone did a video about Little Kids Rock right after we started. And it's just a little two-minute documentary. And in it, I talk about where I got the original idea to teach Little Kids Rock, to do music with my kids. And it was when I was watching a film about Django Reinhardt. Okay. And in that film, they showed little gypsy children playing incredible guitar. And they interviewed Django Reinhardt's son, and they asked him, when do you think a good age to start teaching children music is? And I just had my mind blown by these little children who were putting me to shame with their skills. And he said, well, I think you want to wait till their hands are big enough. I think six is a good age to start. I'm like, six, <laughs> six. I'm teaching first grade here. So that's when I decided, you know what? I'm going to do it. And that's one of the things that I love about teaching and about music. Like ideas are these things you can give away and keep for yourself at the same time. They're renewable energy forever. So it was like Django Reinhardt and jazz got me excited about teaching rock and rap and hip hop to little kids. But you know what? That idea spreads. It's like a positive wildfire. You don't know where it's going to go. Um, and since no one's getting hurt and everyone's being elevated, you know, I just like to fan those flames. So to me, my passion is jazz and I love Django and Gypsy Jazz. I love early George Benson. I love hard bop. I love Parker and Dizzy Gillespie. And and I feel like listening to that music and playing it, it's like being able to step into the head of a genius. You know, like, wow. Like when I play Donna Lee, I mean, oh. I can play it. But I would never have written that. It's just like, wow, Charlie Parker, I am endlessly fascinated by what you did. And I love that you made this planet that much more wonderful. And I could spend the rest of my life just going down the warren of this song and that solo. And that's me. And I know very much that just as passionate as I am about that, there's other music where I'm like, yeah, I have zero interest in that. I don't want to hear Annie Get Your Gun. I don't like that music. And yet there are people <laughs> who are just as passionate yes. about that as you yes. are about Django. And yeah. my thing is, yes to all of us. Right. Yes to me. If I want to play Django, let me play Django. You want to do Annie Get Your Gun? Great. And if I'm your teacher and I'm not willing to teach you Annie Get Your Gun, Shame on me. That's my problem, not yours. Right. And so to me, that's the approach that we take. What is it that you want to learn? And we're going to leverage your natural passion and your natural musical aptitude and your innate musicality, and we're going to get you there as quickly as we possibly can. I could go on for hours speaking with you. You know, we're very much on the same page about so many things. And your personal story and what you're doing with Little Kids Rock is very inspirational. I'm thrilled you could come in here today. I love hearing about all of this stuff. I want to wrap up with two questions, please. 
One is, can you just tell me a little bit about your New Jersey connection? Little Kids Rock is based in Verona, New Jersey, mm -hmm. right around the corner from where we're sitting right now. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit how you ended up here and your connections? Sure. Well, we started in California, and it was a small program in you know, just a dozen or two schools. And we wanted to experiment with like what would it look like to try to launch Little Kids Rock in a radically different market. This was a long time ago, 16 years ago now. And so uh, we were much younger. My wife also was on the job market. She got a job at Rutgers. Oh. Um, so it seemed like a good opportunity. So New York wound up being <laughs> the second city that we started programming in. And then from there, it grew very quickly and organically. I mean, again, we started our first year with a few hundred students. Now, this year, we have over 427,000 students that we currently serve. Say that we, again. Oh, yeah. Over wow. 427,000 kids currently each week getting lessons through the program um, in over 300 school districts across the country. And the New, Jer New Jersey's been home base we have probably about 30 full-time people that work here in New Jersey. We have another six or seven people that work around the rest of the country and then a number of part-time people in other places. We have an office in California, a small one in, in Chicago as well. But New Jersey is where our HQ is, you know. And you're originally an East Coast guy but then went to the West. Exactly. And that's where I started this, you know, becoming a teacher yeah, and, yeah. and all of that. Last question. Hypothetical. So phone rings. You pick it up. You have a conversation, you hang up the phone. The person on the other end of the line just solved your biggest problem or challenge or concern. Who was on the phone and what did they solve? Mm. That is a deep and beautiful question. <laughs> and you said problem, issue, or concern. I'm going to go with concern. I don't know exactly who it is, but it could be somebody like Elon Musk or Bill Gates, or, you know, some of those- Jeff Bezos, those, maybe? It could be. Well, I'm thinking more like a visionary. Like there were uh, these three uh, African-American girls who just won the science fair. And I, I can't even remember what the thing they did was, but it was so brilliant. Um, anyways, but someone like that calls me and they say, it's not the full answer, but we found a way to- stop or reverse or put a stay on global warming and we're buying a lot more time for all of these other important solutions that people are working on. My concern for the globe is global. My concern for humanity extends to all of humanity. You know, it's sort of like boy, was Charles Dickens writing for today. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. We live in a day where we can pen our own demise in more ways than I ever imagined. When we were kids, Brian, you'll remember, it was like, yeah, there could be a nuclear war and that could end life on Earth as we know. Well, now that could happen or it could be global warming or it could be um, the grid goes down or it bio could be bioterror. Bio and, and there's so many things. But the flip side of that is that human creativity, you know, people say that the future of the world lies in our children's hands. I don't think that's true. I think the future of the world lies in their creativity because it's that asset that we're going to tap that's either going to save us or not. So that's another reason why investing in music education and education in general is so important. It's like it is every 
thing. Standardized testing is not going to bring us answers to a non-standardized future. Will we solve the growing wealth disparity by A, raising taxes, B, lowering taxes? It's like, no, it's really not that simple, folks. It's going to require amazing human ingenuity and creativity. And that's why that's the greatest investment that I can think of making is the educating the next generation. I'm thrilled you were able to come in and speak with me. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me, Brian. It was a real pleasure. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media. Hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, audio engineer J.P. Conk, senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening. <laughs>